morning, I would like to cover the last four of those seven. So just by way of reminder, just kind of recap on some of the things that we we talked about last week. Um, a few of the big idea things, general letter information. There was a pattern that we talked about kind of in these letters. Now, a couple of these are rearranged, but mostly when you see to the church in this place, right. And then you're going to see uh, a statement about Jesus, like description of himself. You're going to see some comm- commendations. You're going to see condemnations. He who has an ear, let him hear. You're going to see that statement. And then a challenge to the one who overcomes. That's the general pattern of each one of these letters. Some of these may be reversed a little bit, but that's kind of the format. Uh, And then churches one and seven, the first and the last churches are addressed, are in danger of totally losing their identity as a church. Um, There's really no easy way to put that. They're just at stake of losing their identity in Christ completely. Churches 2 and 6, there's nothing bad said about them in the letter. In fact, it's all commendation. Um, And then the churches in between 3, 4, and 5 have some good, some bad. So that's some general uh, patterns we see in these letters as we evaluate them. All right, and I appreciate uh, Robin reading again these verses from Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 for us, because it introduces who's writing the letter. We see a description of Jesus beginning in verse 12 as John turns, who's speaking to him? He turns to see who it is that's speaking and it's the son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. His hair of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice is like the one of roaring many waters. His right hand, he's holding seven stars, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, or some translations render that a little bit differently. It's bright, it's shining. And so the picture of Jesus that John sees, the one that's speaking to him to write these letters, is a description of Jesus in a way we often don't think about him. We talked about that last week, and fairly so, the picture of Jesus we usually consider is one while he's on earth, right? So we picture him with little children. We picture him maybe with some sheep. We picture him on the cross. But the Jesus that John knows as he writes these letters is the Jesus described in chapter 1. And I think he references this description of him in most of these letters as being why he can say what he's saying. All right, so let's, let's pick up where we left off last time. So we're actually going to begin in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Revelation 2:18. So the last church mentioned in chapter 2 that Jesus wants to write to is the church in Thyatira. I assume that's the best way to say that. I'm not really sure, but that's how I've always heard it said, so that's what I'm going to say. Uh, and what does he have to say to this church? Let's read this section here. Beginning of verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who are eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her in onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so as we examine this letter to Thyatira, there are church number four in our sequence of seven. So you remember what we said about church number four, they fall in the middle. There's some good, there's some bad. Um, one other thing that I would like to observe about this, and we're going to come back to this multiple times, is that Jesus can see a church as a whole, right? He judges a church kind of on the whole, but he also judges individuals, right? There are some among you who have not done this. So that is both a comfort uh, to us, though we may find ourselves in church situations that by and large are discouraging or not good sometimes, right? Um, We are accountable individually for the good or the bad that we're a part of. But then also there can be some danger in that. Other people aren't going to hide my good or my bad, right? If I'm doing uh, things inappropriate, uh, the rest of you guys doing good things is not going to cover that up before God. And so we see that in each one of these letters. I just wanted to point that out as well. All right, so Thyatira, what exactly is God saying to them? Look at verse 18 again. God writes to the angel of the church here, and he says, The words of the Son of God. who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I think whenever Jesus describes himself, the description that he chooses for each letter relates in some way to the problem that the church is having. Um, Maybe not in a direct sense, like they had trouble with fire and bronze and things like that, but in the sense of they needed to hear that aspect of who Jesus is And that would help them address their problem. What exactly is hindering this church in Thyatira? As we consider that Jesus has eyes like flames of fire, right? As Jesus has feet like burnished bronze, he says, I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance. And that your latter words exceed the first. This is a portrait of a church that has some good qualities, Um, I mean, I don't think it's a small thing to say that a church is loving, right? I don't think it's a small thing to be able to say from Jesus that this church has faith, has service, is enduring. In fact, it seems to paint a portrait in verse 19 that they're growing. They're not in the same place that maybe they started at, right? Like they're getting better at some of this stuff. But the problem is this. God, or rather holiness, is not uh, a scale of my good outweighs my bad. Right? Look at what God says in verse 20. But I have this against you. 
like though you're growing in these areas, you're, we might say, uh, regressing in some others, right? And so just as many don't overshadow the bad of one, God sees that, right? God also sees the areas that they really need to work on. Um, And I would point out again, as I said before, um, in verse 24, this isn't everybody. There are some who haven't done this thing. So as God has eyes like fire, he has feet like burnished bronze, he comes at them with a message that's scary, right? Look at what he says, verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. I think most of us would understand that that's probably not... There's probably not a woman named Jezebel. There may have been. Um, But it's probably the type of woman that she is, right? You can go back to, there's a couple places in the Old Testament you can read about Jezebel. First first Kings 16 through 22 is kind of her story. Um, You can go to Chronicles as well. I don't remember the chapters there. Um, And read about her, but she's (laughs) kind of typifies what it is to be an evil woman, right? So you don't, run across very many women named Jezebel these days because she has that uh, reputation, right? But apparently in this church there's a Jezebel, right? And what, what is she causing to happen? Who calls herself a prophetess and she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice what? Sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so this Jezebel, right, whoever she may have actually been, claims to be a prophetess, right? You can imagine her being, she's in the church, she's a godly woman, right? I'm a prophetess of God. But what is her action leading others toward? Well, it's things that were obviously inconsistent with what Jesus taught. Sexual immorality, partaking of idol worship or meals with idols. I gave her time to repent, She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I'll throw her onto a sickbed. You know, I think this is a message that churches would probably need to hear if there's a problem. Um, I think typically as a kid when there was a problem in my life that I didn't understand to be a problem, the one I go back to a lot is not doing homework. I don't really do homework a whole lot. To me, it didn't seem like a problem. I didn't care about my grades. I didn't care about that kind of stuff. So it wasn't that big of a deal to me, right? So my mom had to help me understand how much of a problem that was. And sometimes that was by taking things away from me, right? Like there's repercussions to not doing things that you're responsible for, right? My homework. Well, I think in a way this is Jesus saying things aren't just easy and things aren't always good when you fulfill your desires here He says, in fact, even though it might be appealing, right, commit sexual immorality with Jezebel, right? What is God going to do to those who do? He says he's going to throw her on a bed of sickness, right? She seems appealing. She seems seducting. You want to do what she's doing, and it looks great, but ultimately God's going to throw her in a place of sickness, right? And those who commit adultery with her, look what it says, I will throw into great tribulation." unless they repent. Sometimes, uh, I think really most of the time, sin kind of looks this way, right? Uh, It's appealing, it's sexy, we want to do it. But we have to know that its end looks like this. Now, while we don't, I personally don't understand how this situation may be played out on a practical level. I don't know what this looked like when this occurred. That's really the end of that kind of stuff, right? 
God always ends uh, with unrighteousness or sin kind of this way. He destroys it. He puts an end to it. And so the, the message to this church in Thyatira is like, you have all these good works, and in fact you're growing in a lot of ways, but you're tolerating this one who says they're godly. But really they're leading you to things you know that are not godly, right? And you're allowing it. It says they're tolerating that. And so the message to Thyatira being church number four is somewhat mixed. They have some good things, but they have some really serious problems too. Well, how do we address it? Look at what he says, what Jesus says in verse 21. Jezebel's had time to repent, and what has she chosen to do? Refuse that, right? Those who have joined in with her, what does he tell them they should do? Well, consistently speaking, in verse 22, he says, unless they repent of her works, they're going to be thrown into great tribulation. God's solution to this, this problem, at least at first, to start, start kind of working away from this is you just need to repent. You need to realize that this is not a path you need to be treading, going down, and change your ways. But look at what he continues to say. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. You know, you might view this as kind of like the fruit of her immorality is going to be death, right? Continuing on. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you, give to each of you according to your works. If I'm putting myself in this church's shoes, it would not be an appealing thing to hear that potentially, you know, if we don't repent, we're going to be the example to all the other churches of what happens when God gives us according to our works, especially when it's bad, right? Like we're going to be thrown into tribulation. She's thrown into sickness. The, the fruit of your work has been destroyed, and you're going to be an example of what it is when God gives you according to your works. Um, now, obviously, in this sense, he means that negatively. Um, so, so what do we do, right? Well, God says, repent. These people were to repent. Look at verse 24, but the rest of you, you know, let's just say like this half of the room, sorry guys, is like the Jezebel half, right? And this half of the room is the non-Jezebel half. Well, you guys are probably thinking like, man, this is a terrible situation. The church is like half the people here are doing bad stuff. We don't want to be a part of it. They don't repent. And now the church is a mess. There's tribulation. There's this bed of sickness happening with Jezebel. They're being made known to be those who are given according to their works. Well, it looks like you're lumped into that too, right? Like you're going to feel in a lot of ways like you've done something wrong or you're suffering, right? But look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burdens." Now, I imagine, practically speaking, that didn't mean that they didn't suffer some because of the ill actions of others. It's, that's almost impossible to imagine, right? Like, if you're in the same church, and like a lot of people are doing bad stuff, and then they suffer poorly because of the choices they've made, it's almost hard to imagine that nobody else is affected by that. But you notice God says he doesn't lay any other burden on them. And I think what God's eye is toward is not that they would be struck down and that they would be given according to their works. I think that's the illusion that he's making there. It's not that they wouldn't suffer per se the ramifications of bad decisions on some level, 
but there's no burden from the Lord on them. And isn't really that what we're concerned about? As he continues on, he says, Only hold fast what you have until I come. I imagine if the remnant of Thyatira or whoever is not involved in this stuff, I imagine in some instances that's like all they can think to do. We just got to hang on, right? Like all this stuff's going on, we just got to hang on. And God tells them that's exactly what he wants them to do. Just hang on, right? All right. Verse 26, and here's the promise. If you're going to overcome, here it is. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the promise. To those who can hold fast, right? And as this verse says, the one who does conquer and holds his works to the end has promises from God. What do those who know the deep things of Satan have from God? Well, their children are destroyed. They're given over to great tribulation. Uh, They're going to be given according to their works. But those who overcome are granted rule and authority. They're granted this morning star from God. The picture is a much different picture. Um... There's passages in the Old Testament. Uh, we won't get into this a lot because I need to move on to these other churches. But if you want to uh, think about this some, all th- there's two or three through Isaiah. I can give you the references later that picture God's people, the Gentiles coming to bow before them because they're God's people. I think this is a similar type image here. Um, so anyway, God is giving them this authority for overcoming. And so the question for us is, Does this church relate to Thyatira? I think the answer is yes. The question is in what way do we relate to Thyatira? Is this church tolerating some sort of person that says they're of God, but they're clearly leading people away from God? You know, someone making claims, and I'm not sure what this deep things of Satan exactly means. If this is a claim of Jezebel saying like, oh, these things aren't bad because you don't really know the deep things of God. I'm a prophetess. And really God is turning that on its head and saying it's really deep things of Satan that she knows about. Or maybe it's a, it's a God's vantage point into like how far gone they've gone into that. I'm not sure. But are we tolerating someone or some people that are like that? Um, and I'm not sure that this is for us to look at our, the person on our left and our right and ask them that question. Just think about yourself. Am I tolerating that person? And if there's one or a few of us in this room that are, then maybe Jesus, if he wrote us a letter, might say this about us. And that's something that we have to think about. Are we accepting the false doctrines of Jezebel's? Are we following sexual immorality? Are we following false gods? If we are, just know that God sees that, and the end of that is the destruction of what you're pursuing and tribulation. For those of us who aren't, when we think about our place in this church and we think we are holding fast, I'm not doing that, then you, like Thyatira, can read that promise of God and know that he sees that as well. Let's move on to chapter 3. Chapter 3, the church in Sardis. 
Let's read verses 1 through 6. This is a shorter text. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is church number five. This is Sardis. They have some good and some bad, just like Thyatira. Jesus introduces himself to this church as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You remember Revelation chapter, chapter 1? He has the seven spirits and he has the seven stars in his right hand. It says later in that text that the seven stars um, were the spirits of God. I'm mixing that up. The spirits of God and the seven lampstands were the churches, I think is what it was. And so he portrays himself in that light. Because look at what he says to them. I know your works. Right? You can't fool the one who has the spirits in his hand and is walking among the churches. Right? Well, what was their problem? You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You can't fool the one who's in the churches, who walks among the lampstands, right? You know, I heard someone say this, and I thought it was funny. The problem with this church is that they were concerned about their appearance, right? Their reputation-oriented. Everything was about how they looked, it seemed. And I don't think, this is a supposition on my part, I don't imagine that if you asked that church what they cared about, they would say our appearance, I don't think really people say that, right? But that's really what it was about. It was like, we're going to have the form, and we're going to have uh, the, the things that make us look like we're godly. And that can have some good intent in it, right? I think people do that with some good intent sometimes. Like, we want to look like we're standing for the truth, so we do these things, so people will know we're standing for the truth, but there's never anything deeper, right? And that can be a problem. God is saying, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You know, there's something more important than a reputation, and that's life. I think we all understand that individually, right? Like, reputations have some import. A good name is worth a lot, right? But if all I'm concerned about is how people perceive me, I'm going to be someone that kind of comes and goes with the tides of opinion, right? And that's kind of how this church is viewed, right? You have a reputation of being alive. People perceive that you're good and you're holy, but you haven't actually lived that out. You're dead. Um, this church is concerned about that. And the thing that I heard said that I thought was funny is perhaps as Jesus walks among these lampstands, right, this church might have had like a lampstand polishing committee, right, that they wanted to look like a good lampstand. But Jesus says, I know your works. Look what he says, how they can remedy this. First of all, you need to wake up and strengthen what remains. One good thing about this church is there is something there. 
right? It's not totally a lost cause, right? He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, there is a little something good there. There is something that's kind of hanging on. Jesus says it's about to die. You need to wake up and strengthen it, right? Because what do they need to be? And that's complete in God's eyes. They don't need to be a shell. I think that's kind of the idea, right? Their reputation is kind of the shell, but on the inside they're dead and hollow. They need to be complete. And so look what he continues to say, verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If we in this church are struggling with that, and I think all of us struggle with maybe reputation or opinion on some level, maybe some more than others, but if as a group we find ourselves in this position where we realize we're doing things more for reputation or for perception than we are for godliness and worship, um, I think Jesus' instructions here are very pertinent. We need to wake up. Snap out of it. You're not, you're not here to serve reputation or opinion. Right? And look at what he says again. Remember, verse 3, what you have received and heard. You know, you need to wake up and remember what it is you're about. Remember what it is Jesus has done. Remember what it is Jesus is asking of you. Right? But ultimately, I think this is kind of the scariest part of this for me. In verse 3, he says, keep it and repent. You know, when you realize, like when you kind of wake up and realize, wait a minute, we haven't really been doing what we're about, right? I've been living for kind of the reputation, for the opinion of other people. That is something to repent of. You know, sometimes I think, oh, that was kind of like, uh, misguided. I'll, I'll just do better now. But Jesus says, you need to repent of that, right? Like you were dead, You almost let what was there die off. You need to wake up, strengthen that, repent of that, and move forward. Uh, In verse 3, as he continues on, I will come, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus says that if your sole concern is reputation, and you don't snap out of it, Jesus comes against you. Uh, I don't really know of another way to say that. Um, The reality is Jesus is against you if you don't snap out of that. Um, And so that's something very serious uh, that we have to consider. But look again, just just as with Thyatira in verse 4, you do have a few names uh, in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Again, this idea of reputation being your sole function does soil your garments. But there are a few that haven't done that. And so Jesus recognizes both the group as having issues, but also some individuals as having done the right thing. Again, do we have that problem here? This is kind of a self-reflecting thing. You can only perceive what you perceive. But in your, in your life, do you have that problem? And do you see that problem manifesting itself in a group? If so, help us wake up, Right? Be the person that helps us snap out of that. In your life, if you see that, snap out of it. If you see that in your mom's life or your brother's life or your wife's life, help them snap out of it. Right? Jesus stands against those who refuse to snap out of that. 
All right, let's move on to the next church here. And let me touch on this real quick. Verse 5 says that the promise of those who do, who repent and do snap out of this, and, or, and, or keep their garments unsoiled, don't cave to this, or that Jesus would give them clothes white, just like he had, right? In chapter 1, he's pictured as being in this sash with white hair and things like that. We clothed in white, and I will never blot out his name in the book of life. The implication is, if, and a failure to do this means your name gets blotted out. Okay, now let's move on to Philadelphia. Let's read verses 7 through 13 here. This is church number 6. And the, church, or and the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right, so this is church number six. Like I said before, nothing is poorly poor is said of churches two and six. And so when we read this, that doesn't mean there aren't negative things happening, right? Things that they'll experience, but nothing is said poorly about them, right? And I think that's an interesting idea is just that even though God finds no fault with his people, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, or that they're not going to suffer in some way, right? Because... Look at the other thing that's at play here. What, it, what is Philadelphia going to experience? I think from these verses that we see in verse 9, it looks like persecution. It looks like trouble is going to be experienced. And it says from a synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. Um, this is, we've seen a similar uh, similar testimony given last week about a synagogue of Satan in one of the churches. So I imagine this is going to be some trouble for them. Um, But nothing poor is said of them in this. They're just going to have to go through this thing. But look at what God, how he describes himself at the beginning of this letter. Jesus is spoken of in this way. The words of the Holy One, the True One. The one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Uh, This portrait of God uh, is actually, or of Jesus here, is not one that we have from chapter 1. If you go back to Isaiah 22, I think it's a concept that we see there about the one that has the keys of David um, is mentioned in Isaiah 22. And so I think, if I understand this correctly, is this concept of Jesus has the authority, he has the kingdom, 
he has the rule, and that gives him the authority to open and close doors, to make things happen. Um, and look at what's happening in these verses. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you, your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So I don't imagine the synagogue of Satan as someone enjoyable to be around. But what does Jesus do with them? He opens a door. And nobody's going to be able to close the door. And it seems like the synagogue of Satan is kind of coming through the door, if I'm picturing this correctly, which seems like an odd thing for God to do. But when they come through the door, what are they doing? It seems like the picture is that they're coming and God is making them bow down. Right? Well, when they bow down, it says, before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. I'm not exactly sure how that played out in the lives of the Christians in Philadelphia. But I know it happened. Um, and so I think it's important that we see that when Jesus says, I am the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and will shut and no one opens, that they understand that God's going to make this happen and there's no way to turn it around. Right? As much as the synagogue of Satan, those Jews who said they were Jews and were not, wanted to leave, like, let's close this door. Let's not have this happen to us. God made the door open. And so Philadelphia doesn't have anything poor said of them. And God says they have what? In verse 8, a little power. <laughs> right? I don't know what that means either. You know, some churches, I think, have more influence and power in some ways than others. And it's not an indication of a better church or a worse church. I just think for various and sundry reasons, some churches are placed in a position where maybe they have a little more authority and power in their neighborhood or in their community than others. This church apparently didn't. They had some, but it's viewed as a, they had a little power. But God opened the door and caused these people to come. And what does he say that these people will learn of them? That I have loved you. You don't look that powerful. You have a little power, but they're going to know that I have loved you. What an amazing thing for God to show about a church. Um, would God write to us the same thing? Would he be like, yeah, you guys, you know, you're like this little city church. You know, you know how much, you have a little power, right? But people are going to come and know that I have loved you. What an amazing thing if Jesus would be able to write that to us. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we like the Philadelphia church? Would God write that to us? Because look at some of the things they were doing. You have kept my word in verse 10 about patient endurance. Are we enduring like the Philadelphians did? Are we sticking around? Continuing. I'll keep from you the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, a blessing from God for their endurance, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may what? Seize your crown. All the good things the Philadelphians have done. He's got nothing poor to say about them. But even now, if they give up, what could they lose? Their crown. Right? Jesus is interested in a whole life that clings to what he said. Not 
some span of time in your life. Even the Philadelphians, as good as they were, and God was going to show others that he had loved them, they needed to continue to cling and hold fast. Otherwise, they could lose their crown. The promise to the conqueror, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. What a promise that God gives those who conquer. Um, I'm not under, I feel like I'm saying this all the time, I don't understand all the ins and outs of this. Um, But these promises from God, to me, carry a lot of weight I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. I'll write on him these names that many don't know, right? They're new names. What a blessing that these in Philadelphia had. And if Jesus were to write to us, would he say this stuff? We know that these are promises for those who overcome. So as we think about ourselves, are we overcoming? that we'd be able to lay hold of these promises. The last church, unfortunately, the way that the, these letters are structured, we don't end on a high note. We end on church number seven, who conversely really has nothing good said about it and is in danger of, in fact, just like church number one, losing its identity completely. Jesus walks among the lampstands, and the portrait here is like he's going to put out this lamp. All right, so let's read verses 14 through 22. And the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot, cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Laodicea, I think we're more familiar with this one because of some of the phrases that he uses, we use sometimes as well. In verse 14, Jesus is described as the words of the Amen, the so be it, right? Um, He also is described as the faithful and true witness. I imagine this is how this plays out. And I would not be dogmatic about this, but I'm just imagining Laodicea receives this letter and they're just like, are you kidding me? Like, we had no idea we were that way, right? Like, we're lukewarm. I think lukewarm people and maybe people oriented on reputation like a couple churches ago would be like, what? We're about the right things, right? Lukewarm to me, especially when we consider this context, seems like they don't, they, they don't really have any kind of fire or passion, right? Um, they don't realize kind of where they are and what they need. They're just kind of there. They're doing it, right? And it's just kind of this thing that's lukewarm. 
And so I imagine someone like that, when they get this letter, would be like, what? Are you sure? Right? And so when Jesus says, the words of the amen, right? This is the so, I know, so be it. This is how it is. I see it. I walk among the lampstands, right? I'm not a false witness. I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm not making this stuff up, right? I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I imagine there's some temptation. We'll talk about this a little bit more with the pride of Laodicea, but I imagine there's some temptation to dismiss this letter, right? And Jesus saying that I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I've been there from the beginning. Again, emphasizes the weight of his words. And look at the problems of Laodicea. They think they're rich, they're prospering, and they don't have any needs. When in reality, what are they? Wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. I don't know much more problematic, uh, just practically speaking, than lukewarmness with pride. Right? Like, I'm just, meh, about stuff, and I don't want to hear it. Right? Like, how do you move some, in any realm, how do you move someone like that? Like, if someone feels that way about their job, probably not a very good employee, right? Like, eh, I'm lukewarm about this job, but I don't want to hear what you have to say about it, right? If you're the boss, that person's getting fired, right? Spiritually speaking, that's kind of a terrible position to be in, right? I mean, like, if you don't really have any passion one way or another about something you're just kind of like this lukewarm christian and you have arrogance where you don't want to hear it i've got everything i need i'm rich i'm prosperous how does god work with that right and i think that's why this church is in danger of uh being removed right look at verse 20 behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come to him and eat with him and he with me What a beautiful promise. God will dine with those who answer the door. But the portrait is, you have this church, and where's Jesus? On the outside, knocking to come into the church. I mean, it's like he's not even in the church, right? That's kind of the the idea I get from this. He's like, I'm standing out there. I want to come in and eat with you and be a part of this. But I'm knocking. And so if anyone hears me knocking, let me in. But the portrait is, I'm outside of the doors of you your place and I'm knocking what a sad portrait (laughs) right like if there's any place that Jesus should be pictured in we typically think of like the church right but for Laodicea Jesus places himself in the imagery on the outside of the door just kind of waiting to come in somebody hear my voice let me in I'll eat with you right you don't know you need me in there you're prosperous and you're good on your own but I'm knocking right Would Jesus write to us the same way? Would he be like, that in-town church, just kind of knocking, waiting for somebody to let me in and let me dine with them, but they don't know they need me, right? I'm not sure in what practical ways Laodicea lived this out. I'm I'm sure we could come up with some, right? I I don't imagine they would be like, we're Jesus-less. They're a church, right? But Jesus wasn't there. Look at what Jesus says is the solution to this. Verse 18, and we'll wrap up here. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. The solution to their, seems like apathy and pride, right? The solution to their apathy, and I know this sounds silly, is like, be zealous, like, be passionate about this. Get fired up about it. Do something, right? That seems like a weird answer because it doesn't tell me like how to overcome apathy, but I think in some ways it's just like you just have to do it. Decide to be passionate about this. I think in some ways like decisions inform feelings. In some ways feelings inform decisions, so use that, right? But then look at the other part of that. Be zealous in what? Repent. Every letter where there's something mentioned wrong, you always see repent. And so this church, their identity could be lost. They're apathetic and they're proud. Terrible combination. But if they decide to change that stuff and open the door for Jesus, he'll come in and dine with them. At the very end here, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Does in town, does this church relate to any of these churches? I imagine we do, probably to multiple. But are they in good ways or bad ways? Are we more like Laodicea, right? Or are we more like Ephesus? Or are we maybe more like Philadelphia? I don't know the answer to that question, really, and I think we constantly need to be chewing on that. But if we envision Jesus writing us a letter today, I would hope that in all honesty we could say that we'd be more like Philadelphia. Um, And if we're not, I imagine repenting is part of the plan to solve that. But we also need to figure out what else we need to do. If it's be zealous, right? Or if it's remember the things written or whatever. We need to take these words from Jesus very seriously. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I know these lessons have been long. It was like a lot of material to get through. Um, But I hope it's been helpful to consider. Maybe it's been a little more informative about the beginning of Revelation. I think the rest of the book of Revelation, uh, because it is written to these seven churches, address a lot of these things he was writing about in the letters, and he uses a lot of big pictures for that. Um, And these promises that he gives to the overcomer in each of these letters, I believe, are reflected at the end of Revelation. Um, So maybe that will help you in your study of the book. But also, just help you in your walk. Like Jesus sees the things this church is doing, but also what you are doing or what you're not doing. And so be very aware of that. If there's anyone this morning that needs to make some changes in their life and you feel like this group could help you with that, share that with somebody because this time that we sing the song is the time to, to reach out for help in that way.